Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I've had the great honor of being at the NGV now since June 11th, so I feel like I'm kind of an honorary citizen at this point. Um, Lisa set up a really interesting conversation about what it's like to be at the Guggenheim, and it is often to be a person of the world. And I remember when I went into interview with her, she said, well, if I were to hire you, it would involve international travel. Is that all right? And I said, sign me up. So um, I originally had a few slides, which I took out because I thought they were a little self-indulgent, but I have had the privilege of traveling the world for the Guggenheim in the last three years. And um, I was, you may remember from one of Lisa's slides, a show that said, Russia exclamation point. That was my first big exhibition at the Guggenheim, the largest survey of Russian art in the history. Um, and President Putin came and I gave him the tour. So I've, it's been an interesting journey. But after that, I transitioned into doing a lot of work with our collection, which is truly rewarding because even though you saw some slides of our collection installed in New York, we don't tend to have much of our collection up at any given moment. And so for me, it's been a tremendous experience getting to know our collection and also just seeing it installed in completely different buildings, such as the one we have here. We started, actually, after the Bonn exhibition that uh, Francis just mentioned, I came home and um, actually immediately went to Abu Dhabi, but then I came back and Amy and Tony flew into New York and we began to chart what this exhibition might look like. And we were really excited that they wanted to bring to your museum here the art of the post-war period, because that is actually my area of expertise. And also, uh, it gave us a chance to mine works that we don't typically show or we just haven't shown. And so it began, discussions began, and I'm actually going to just quickly fast-forward over slides and come back to them, because I just want to show you something of our working method. It looks rather shabby at the moment in this slide, but this is how we work in New York. We build three-dimensional models of the exhibition space, and we have to scale maquettes of our works of art. And that's how we begin to visualize a project such as this one. And so with Amy and Tony at my side, we stood before our model and I had shuffled the deck already of things that might be and we started the process of figuring out what the show would look like. Um, as Amy can attest, there are volumes and volumes of emails and uh, curatorial thoughts and concepts developed and evolved over a course of a few months. And we settled on Guggenheim Collection 1940s to now. I'm going to go back to the beginning now and start you on the story. Essentially, what we do as curators, as many of you know, because I know a lot of curators are in this audience, is that we, we are storytellers, and we have to find a way to make um, the world that is created through visual art come to life for the visitor. And so one of the things we knew about this exhibition is we wanted to start in the immediate aftermath of World War II, and we wanted to show different sides of the coin, not just one a one-note wonder. But of course... One of the very key aspects of the story of post-war art is the shift of art, the center of the art world from Paris to New York, um, of a new generation emerging, of, uh, and, and largely through an abstract visual language. So the first section of the exhibition, when you go in, well, actually, when you go in, there's a sculpture by Giacometti, and on one side is a de Kooning, which actually I'm just going to put up right now, this, this de Kooning, whose name was writ in water. And on the other side of the Giacometti is Jean Dubuffet, a painting that's figurative, um, that's by a European. And essentially what we tried to do is map out two paths, two paths that run side by side and have certain elements in common, but also many things in, that are quite distinct. And so with someone like de Kooning, we began to look at the new emergence of the New York School, Artists who were looking at expressionist techniques from the early 20th century were interested in surrealism, particularly the, mo the notion of automatic painting, of going directly from the hand, head to the hand, and executing the canvas um, without a lot of study. And so many of these artists came into contact with surrealists in New York who had fled the war, some of them through the context of Peggy Guggenheim's gallery, The Art of uh, the Century, and, um, and then gradually they began to develop their own signature styles. And they began with works like this one by de Kooning to work on a much larger scale than the traditional easel painting from the sort of world of Cezanne, let's say. Jackson Pollock is probably the most pivotal figure in that story. And Pollock actually, his history, um, I think Lisa alluded to it, intertwines with that of the Guggenheim in that Peggy Guggenheim gave Pollock his first stipend, monthly stipend, so that he could devote himself to art. Interestingly, what, one of the ways he was earning money was actually as a custodian in the Museum of Non-Objective Painting of her uncle Solomon, which of course later became the Guggenheim Museum. So Pollock actually was quite 
quite involved in our history as well. And again, this is the notion of contem- contemporary art. Peggy was collecting contemporary art. In a work such as two that you see, which came to us from her collection in Venice, um, we're really looking at the early phases when Pollock is very engaged with Picasso. I know there was the Picasso show last year as part of the Winter Masterpiece, as the Winter Masterpiece show. He was looking at Picasso. He was looking at Native American painting, at surrealism. And so you have these two very totemic figures, um, one male, one female. And, um, and still the scale, when you go into the galleries, you'll see the scale is still rather smaller than, than he would eventually come to. Um, Lisa told you the acquisition story of this painting, but we, um, it's true that when Peggy went back to Europe after World War II, it was just at that moment when, when Pollock was coming into this drip technique where he put the canvas on the floor and he would stand above it and almost like as a dance and action in the, the arena of the canvas would drizzle paint and, and, um, with different implements and then later stretch them as, as completed canvases. Um, a lot of people have asked me why there's one of this small scale, and the, the real honest truth is that Pollock had to, had to sell paintings, and not everybody could put something the size of um, the, the painting you have here in Canberra in, in their living room. And so, um, so Pollock, we, we really were, it was really that moment when he starts the drip, the Peggy leaves. She gets a couple of early drip paintings that came with her last contract, but that's why when we acquired this, we were so excited, because, of course, Pollock really stands at the center of this moment where the formal qualities of art are, are profoundly stressed, where there's this notion of the um, great pine, the, the subjectivity of the artist being writ large on the canvas. And, and Pollock was among a generation that was widely exported through exhibitions by the U.S., sponsored by the United States government, because in the aftermath of the Cold War, it was very much seen as of the spirit of, the, of freedom and, and, and pioneering spirit of what was um, the great America, so to speak. So... Um, Pollock was not the only uh, member of his generation to start out in a figurative idiom. Mark Rothko um, is represented in the show by the painting you're seeing on the screen. And in fact, Rothko was very good friends, I'm just going to go forward one minute, with Adolf Gottlieb. Um, his augury that you see on the screen is virtually contemporaneous. And they decided that it was a great idea to look at mythology um, and diff- as a way of coming out of what was the tradition in the United States at that time, which was realism or social realism, born partly out of the, um, the Great Depression when there was a, the Works Progress Administration was established and many of these artists worked on, on murals. So they, that, that scale was quite comfortable to them. But in the case of Gottlieb, he creates this almost grid-like structure. He takes different forms from um, primitive art of different cultures. Um, and with Rothko, he was reading things like Oedipus. He, he had, it had a very intellectual base in some ways and also a spiritual quality to him. And in the show, we have this um, abstract work. This is actually a kind of moment of transition for Rothko where he goes from a more surrealist visual vocabulary into an exclusively abstract um, color field um, painting style. And um, essentially, this is he is kind of the other side of the coin. If you have the very gestural and abstract expressionist of Pollock, you now have color field with Rothko. And so in the exhibition, you'll see those two paintings beginning that section because we wanted to portray that there was not just one approach that emerged in that time. Also with Gottlieb, he's another case where he started in this very figurative mode and moved into the abstract. And you'll see the painting Mist where you have on the one hand almost this color field top with a very gestural bottom. And so he's really kind of fusing styles of both of those two sides of the coin I was mentioning. And um, we have it next to the mother well because what emerged looking at our collection, and again, I, I want to stress this is a portrait of a collection, even though it is also in some ways a survey. And so we, we realized that there were a lot of paintings that were in the black and white mode, and, so, and we'll see another one in a minute by a European. But mother well was very well known for his series um, of the Elegy to the Spanish Republic, in part inspired by a viewing of um, Picasso's Guernica, which again, I, we're sort of looping back on where you were last year here with the um, exhibition, and, um, but really using these large abstract blots and, um, and, and giving it a totally different visual interpretation. One of the things that I've learned in talking to the NGV um, colleagues is that in 1967, I believe, this um, gallery acquired a Helen Frankenthaler painting that was exhibited in an early exhibition. And so Helen Frankenthaler in 1952, um, she had actually been looking at some work by Pollock that was ink on black ink on white 
um, canvas, sometimes on paper, and it had this amazing stained quality. And so she had the idea to soak and stain the canvas with um, a thinned um, paint. Often it was, sometimes in the beginning it was oil, later it was acrylic. And so background and foreground became one, and it really became about the flatness of the picture plane, about color. Again, all these formal elements. And um, sometimes she gave them names that related to nature, actually quite often. So in this case we have canal. And um, a kind of unusual discovery for all of us was that we had picked three abstract expressionist paintings with water-themed topics. We had Whose Name Was Writ in Water by de Kooning, and later you'll see Basiotti's Aquatics. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that, that nature is still, um, in a way the landscape and nature is still present in a very abstract picture. But Frankenthaler had a great impact on Morris Lewis and his colleague Kenneth Noland, who came and visited her studio and were quite moved and began to work in this sort of soak stain technique or in a, in a also color field is how it's often called. And a kind of anecdote about this painting is that um, it's said that the great MoMA curator Bill Rubin suggested the orientation of the painting to Morris Lewis that in fact he may have maybe flipped. He may have worked where it came from the top or what's now the bottom down and pooled, but um, it, we've never reversed the orientation. There's always this discussion. So sometimes curators can have obviously have an impact on the artist. Um, this is Nolan's work in the show. Nolan did a lot of series engaging geometric forms like the chevron um, with this kind of hard edge painting. And then someone like Jules Olitsky actually used a spray gun. So uh, what we're starting to see with this generation too is not necessarily the touch directly from the hand to the canvas. Um, you're used, they're, they're sort of a little bit removed, and that, that's a kind of approach that's going to continue into the next period. We ended, in terms of the Americans in this early section, we ended with um, the works of Agnes Martin and Ellsworth Kelly because it's sort of the, you've gone, after you kind of traverse that path, you move into the next phase, which is minimalist painting. And Martin is well known for her paintings of grids, and grid is kind of, uh, it's an approach, a visual approach that we'll see throughout the exhibition, um, kind of repeating and being reinvented. And so on the one hand, you have something like the really white canvas of um, Untitled and then the, the sort of darker approach. But there is a kind of serial repetition of form, um, but yet still a kind of nice approachable size painting and a, an almost poetic quality to the painted surface. This is the Baziotis I was mentioning. We also included some sculpture. You see Isamu um, Noguchi's Cry, um, made a kind of decision to put it in the abstract section, which is kind of an interesting thing, because in a way it's also figurative. It's, it's like this open mouth of the scream or of Giacometti, who we'll see. Um, so he's on that borderline. So many of these artists were always on that border between figuration and abstraction. And finally, in this section, Ellsworth Kelly, who was a great pioneer of the shaped canvas and of monochrome painting, um, he was really against this idea of the absolute emphasis on the hand, evidence of the hand of the artist. And so you don't see, see that. It's virtually removed. And also he wanted the picture to carve out space around it, not just be about this, this representation. Now you'll notice by the date here, it's from 1995, and so um, it's a late work. All these other works in the gallery are mostly 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but it's linked to our history because when we were doing a show called Abstraction in the 20th Century, a show that was very important for me in graduate school, um, he, took, he went out with our curator to Los Angeles to a collector who owned a green, green curve. The collector declined the loan, and on the way back, apparently, we only just learned this during this show, Ellsworth said, well, I think um, there needs to be a blue curve in the world, so he painted it, and it's now in our collection. Um, one of the things that you'll see in uh, just showing you the model really quickly is um, we, I, we kind of upended this whole America thing a little bit. Um, oh, here we go. That painting that you'll see in a minute is by the French artist Pierre Soulage, who's a contemporary of the Americans. And um, it just seemed to really speak. It, it belongs with these people because he was really looking and using the gesture. And, um, but it, it, it looks quite different. And I'll talk about it more in a minute. But just to say that as you're going through the path of the exhibition, we have a couple of things that break with being completely um, true to the categories, if you will. So, well, actually, he's right here, so I can start on that. Um, Soulage was um, often associated with art informel, a term coined by, um, in, the, in the early 1950s by a French critic, and it 
Art Informel actually incorporated both figuration and abstraction. So someone like Jean Dubuffet, who we'll see in a minute, was, um, was associated with it. But basically, there was a strong emphasis on the gesture, on the subjectivity of the artist, often um, a very expressive style. And in the case of Soulage, he was not inspired by this sort of acting in the arena, but really by the way darkness looked in medieval cathedrals and, um, and also by Rembrandt, which when you get to the, to the exhibition and you look at it, there's almost a an aspect of varnishing that you see in Rembrandt. So it has a, a, a quite different feel in many ways than the American contemporaries, but is related. One of the things, um, you can't really tell from the title that Francis read of my dissertation, but my dissertation was about artists in Europe in the 1950s and 60s who made kinetic and optical art. Many of them formed groups um, as a mode of, uh, as a social gesture, because they were really interested in interactivity and getting the viewer activated as, as a possibility that if you could become activated by looking at a work of art, you might become activated in your social practice. And so um, this, the, the center of that story, which is running, you know, really kind of parallel to what's going on in the New York School, happens in Paris. It's really the center. Although at the same time, there are other centers in Europe that emerge, like Dusseldorf and Milan. Um, right here, you're looking at a work by the Israeli immigrant artist Yaakov Agam. Agam was one of about six artists that had, was involved in a very major show in 1955 called Le Mouvement, or Movement. It was held at the Gallery Denise René, and there was some work by Duchamp, because he had some early kinetic pieces, but also this younger generation that was emerging. And so when you go into the space, you can see that on, on one hand, it's kind of like a black monochrome painting, but there's a small central element that when you turn to the right... You see um, triangles, and when you turn to the left, it becomes squares. So it requires your active movement around the piece. And um, this is a chapter in art history that's been widely um, exhibited in Europe recently, but it still continues to be bordering on the invisible in American art history. So certainly um, having the opportunity to make this little section, I hope that I can bring it to New York soon and start shaking up that chapter. Um, the central figure in the monochrome painting story in Europe is Yves Klein. Um, we actually have here one of his red paintings, but of course Yves Klein was most prominently known for his blue canvases that he actually even coined or um, patented the name IKB, International Klein Blue. And um, in 1957 in Milan, he exhibited 11 identical canvases um, of blue, and he had them mounted so they came out from the walls. So there was not so much about the old relationship of just hanging a painting, but it became almost object-like. It almost floated. And the kind of powdery, iridescent blue was meant to evoke a kind of spiritual um, quality, a notion of the infinite. And um, whether you believed it or not, that was his intention. And he, a lot of young artists really did believe it. And so um, you're seeing also here one of our works by Piero Menzoni. Menzoni saw the show in Milan, and he immediately embarked upon his Achrome series, a series of works that are in all basically, well, they all are all white. This is a case where he dipped the canvas into... Um, into um, kind of clay, let it dry. And so what he liked, Klein wanted to not show the evidence of the hand, much like Kelly. And likewise, Manzoni wanted the drying process to finish the work and not his hand. So this is kind of moving towards this idea that the subjectivity that's embodied by abstract expressionism may not be the most appropriate expression in the 50s. And um, at the same time, Lucio Fontana, who has already had a very extensive career at that point, but did actually buy one of those paintings from Klein's show, began making monochrome canvases around that time and slashing them, taking their wonderful pictures of him um, making these, these cut gestures. And he talked a lot about spatialism and the element of space. And so in these, um, you're supposed to imagine the space beyond the canvas. It's no longer, again, an illusionistic surface, but um, a suggestive object. Another artist that was influenced was um, Gunter Eucher. You're seeing his um, tactile rotating sculpture uh, structure here. Um, it was kind of an interesting find for me because I was combing our database, um, not even really actually for this exhibition, and I learned that Peggy Guggenheim owned several works from this generation, which none of us actually ever knew. And um, it turns out that because she was very engaged with some of the Italians, they persuaded her to buy some of the Germans and, and other artists. So she bought this work by Gunter Eucher, who was very close to Eve Klein. In fact, his sister was married to Eve Klein and the mother of his child. And, um, and he was known for using these very long nails, and he's still, he's still alive and still practicing. And so when you go and see this, we can't allow you, of course, the, the terrible thing about being in a museum is you can't allow too much touching. But basically, you're supposed to use your hand to rotate it, and the, the notion of how it changes, the composition changes over time is very important. 
Um, Jean Tangli also, um, he was in that Le Mouvement show, and his work is actually kinetic. Again, if you have to get the audio guide here, and you will see what his artist's intention was meant to be, we can't plug it in here. So one of those great challenges of, of bringing something to exhibit and it slowly, these pieces of metal, it's a relief, slowly rotate and um, form other compositions. And he was actually, much like some other artists like Calder, wanted to dynamize um, the art like, um, take, take the work of someone like Malevich, um, the early 20th century artist, and dynamize it. So he, he did that and brought it into three dimensions. And finally, Heinz Mach, um, this was a work that um, Mach actually gave to the Peggy with the intention of having it shown here in Melbourne. So it is actually debuting. And it's a, it's a light relief. It's a, it's a silver background with different pieces. And it's how light plays across the surface is what his intention, um, the kind of core of his art is. And um, I know that Gerard Vaughn mentioned um, Jesus Rafael Soto. This is a Latin American artist. And um, when you stand in front of it, side view is a little bit difficult to, to imagine. But there are black and white lines, and the squares seem to almost float or glow. So again, it's engaging the optics, which was totally embodied by Victor Vassarelli, um, who was very much behind the um, notion of kinetic art, although he never made his work actually move. So this is one of his great um, paintings from the homage to the Hexagon series. And as you see, you can't help but feel physically impacted by it. Working in the model, you'll actually, if you go in the exhibition, you'll see I actually changed a number of things in the uh, installation for that gallery. But you will notice that the, um, the, the, a lot of the Soto and the Vesarelli are still together. And think about the cube in a minute. Um, figuration, we start the show, as I mentioned, with the Giacometti. Um, this work knows, which was around the time of the Pinocchio film, but it also has this screaming mouth like, um, like something like the, um, the scream by Munch. And also the structure, the formal structure of the work looks very much like a handgun. So it's really made in, in a time when there is this incredible angst in Europe, this kind of trying to understand how to move forward from the war. And he also made figures like Leone, um, when he was in exile during the war, he made a lot of very skinny figures out of matchbox sticks so he could actually carry them back. And this is kind of that same formal language realized. Um, this was specifically cast for Peggy Guggenheim, and she normally lives in the um, garden of the Peggy Guggenheim collection. So we kind of, I, I, said we, I started to say we brought her in from the cold. We brought her in from the heat, I guess. A um, number of Europeans formed a group called COBRA, which stands for Copenhagen, Brussels, and Amsterdam. And um, this is Carol Appel, one of those artists. Um, Appel was looking at, obviously, um, tribal art, at very much at something like German Expressionism from the early 20th century. There's this idea of going back to origins, to basic visual language, to um, expressive strokes. And actually, in some ways, it has a lot to do, I mean, similar to what, what Pollock was doing at about the same time, but it's, it's much more material um, in a certain way. And Appel is somebody that um, really, he actually asked um, Solomon's nephew, who, was, who took over from, from him when he passed away on the board, and he said to Harry, I'd love to have a show here at the Guggenheim. He said, sure, great. He never had a solo show. So, um, Jean Dubuffet, who begins the second, the second path I mentioned at the beginning, um, it's um, a very unusual, a slightly unusual work for him because he's often known for these very um, material, dark-colored um, paintings. This is from his Paris Circus series when he kind of became, went back to the city after being in the countryside for a long time and felt very exuberant. And I always say to the young audiences that this figure reminds me of Dobby, the house elf in the Harry Potter movies. So, you know, if you're bringing your children, maybe you can bring it up to date in that way. Um, we wanted very much, Amy and Tony and I, to introduce a Latin American element to this um, discussion. And so we have the Cuban painter Wilfredo Lom, who returned. He had been in the Surrealist Circle in Paris, but returned to Cuba during World War II and began to look at the culture of Santeria, of voodoo, and the different deities. Um, and so this is kind of a fusion of those sources. Mata was a very important member, um, late joiner to the Surrealist Circle, had been working with the great architect Le Corbusier, and he came to, to New York and actually started befriending especially Robert Motherwell, whose elegy to the Spanish Republic we saw, also Pollock. He introduced them to the notion of automatism, and he kept trying to promote them to Peggy Guggenheim because he wanted to sort of found his own offshoot of surrealism, but he never quite succeeded because the Americans really didn't want to be in that surrealist vein. And so it's got a kind of, this has a kind of landscape quality to it, and it's, it's really still looking at that tradition of surrealism. Um, Asger Jorn's another member of Cobra. He does this all-over composition. It's always so hard when I'm standing in front of it, but maybe you can see here, there's a hooded figure. 
Those are his eyes. And um, so really and truly, it's kind of like a guessing game and hunting. But what, what I like to use this slide to talk about is it's called a soul for sale. You would probably never see, almost never see, an American artist of that period using such a kind of existential topic. So, so, so title sometimes comes into play. But I, I liked bringing it in, in dialogue with this Philip Guston. And um, when Lisa came through the show, she said to me that she didn't really ever think of this as a being a figurative painting. But in fact, it is a really important moment in Guston's career in the late 50s when, and this is from 61, but around 59, he began, he went away from his very abstract style and he started making these figures. You can sort of see the hooded figure. It had been in his art in earlier times because he was very influenced by the very challenging circumstances with um, the Ku Klux Klan in, um, in L.A. during his youth. And then someone like Joaquin Torres Garcia that was trying to found um, a school of, um, a revival school in Barcelona. He was actually from Uruguay, but he spent a long time in, in Spain and then later in France, fusing the language of, of, of Cubism with different symbols drawn from various sources. Um, when, this is when he had gone back to Uruguay and he was really looking at pre-Columbian sources and trying to, even though he was using the grid of Mondrian in a certain way, trying to forge a school of the South. And he was very influential in the next generations. So as you can see, just as a quick comment, we were planning originally to put the Pollock at the beginning of the show and not the Dubuffet, and that's just one of those things when you hang it up and you see the scale is off, and it's just not quite working. So some of the things get changed in the, in the situation of the uh, gallery. I'm going to skip over those. So when you, when you finish up in that section, you cross over a threshold, and you actually come dead on, and I'm hoping it's, the first, it's not the first slide. Yeah. Dead on to the Stan Flavin environment. And... Um, one of the things, as, as Lisa outlined earlier, in, in 1991, we acquired the Ponza collection of minimalism, and it was very much in keeping with our spirit of non-objective art that, that was our foundation, but it was taking it in a completely different direction. And so we ended up um, acquiring quite a number of works by Dan Flavin. And also, as Lisa articulated, Dan Flavin's works are becoming more and more challenging because they're not producing these fluorescent tubes. But one of the reasons we wanted this to be your threshold is it was it was almost like monochrome painting come to life or optical art come to life. It's, it's of that period where it's really forcing you to have a relationship to it, both physical and physiological and, and in terms of retinal. And so you have the yellow tubes on one side. You're seeing kind of a hint. It looks like blue, but it's actually green tubes on the other side, so it's an illusion. And, um, and so he's part of a generation like Carl Andre that began to go even further away from the touch of the artist's hand and really taking using their ideas as the core and, and bringing out, using things they could buy in the local hardware store as materials, also using serial repetition of modular units. So that, and then someone like Andre, who redefines sculpture, we all think of it being on a base and walking around it. In this case, it's literally metal, metal plates on the floor that you're supposed to be able to walk on, so feel free to do so. Um, and, and so he changes our physical relationship and our expectations in art. And also a very important member of this generation is Donald Judd. So what you see is here, too, a movement away from painting, per se, and towards objects, um, objects that you have a relationship to. And, and the reason that we chose the Judd is also, again, it has this, it's a very vivid orange, and we like this idea that there is still a dialogue about color. It doesn't disappear, even though the terms are slightly different. And the section is really about this inherent geometry. This is the hardest work in the world to show in a slide. Um, so just I'm going to paint a word picture more than the actual picture. Um, Saul Lewitt, who just passed away two months ago, approximately, maybe three now, um, was one of the great pioneers of conceptual art. And when Lisa said that we paid X million dollars for pieces of paper, he's one of those. We bought a piece of paper that, uh, for different works that explained a system, an idea really demarcating how you would in could interpret numbers and lines and would end up with what he called wall drawings. And so every time that we put one of these up, because of course it is only a piece of paper, we bring a studio assistant to execute it in situ. And so we had one of the members of the studio who had been trained by Solowit directly. She was here for 14 days and worked in concert with an art handler here who's an artist. And they meticulously resharpening a pencil before every little stroke of the line mapped out this grid. Um, it's, it's a grid of squares, and they have this quite beautiful, subtle color. So I'm, I'm just going to not even... You have to experience it, but it's an amazing um, feat to get this thing accomplished. And even though it sounds... You know, one would be so, potentially so skeptical, it's incredible when you see it. Another part of that um, section has to do with... Um, 
tension and um, physical tension and also physical relationships and other materials. And Robert Morris's felt piece, it's a very thick industrial felt um, that just sags, almost like it's a human body. Um, I always feel like it looks like a bit of a spider myself. But um, in any case, this is another instance of artists using a material from industry, a non-traditional material. Um, Bruce Nauman's um, floating room is constructed in situ also here. And um, it, it literally it hovers above the um, ground, and you can go from the kind of bright experience of the um, gallery into a more quiet, contemplative, and darker space. Um, his whole idea is that you would have a sort of psychological shift. Um, it's not totally dark. I, at one point, he articulated this sort of fear of the dark, and I don't think you're going to find it quite that dark, but it's quite, quite soothing anyway. I'm going to skip to the Richard Serra because the other one doesn't read in slide. Um, Richard Serra is someone, as you saw in the slide of Bill Bow, where we have the massive um, commission that was executed there. He's an artist we have a long-standing relationship with, and he often made works um, that prop. So actually, these are standing up by propping one to the other. It's, an, it's a feat of engineering, and, and uh, it's, I, it's not dangerous, <laughs> but it's actually quite amazing what he has achieved with this work. Finally, um, Lawrence Wiener's text piece, this is the, how it was installed in New York, but you're going to see it looking quite different. Um, he often, what he does is he has different phrases that he takes that are meant to evoke thought. Sometimes they're meant to evoke sculptural ideas. And, of course, you recognize this um, classic biblical earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Sometimes he does it in black lettering. For this one, he chose to do it in colored lettering with an outline and a different font. And somebody made the comment yesterday, that, um, which is an interesting thing that happens in exhibitions, that it's fantastic that it's seen in relation to the Solowit, almost as though it's an elegy for him. So this is how I had uh, um, laid it out on the, in the model, and actually this is a gallery that pretty much stayed the same. Contigu at the same time, contemporaneous with um, minimalism, pop art emerged in, in Europe, well, first in the UK and, and then in the United States in the early 60s. And um, people like Rauschenberg are kind of an early phase of that where he began to take images of his own, images from daily life, and silkscreen them onto um, canvas so that it's using these techniques of mass reproduction. But at the same time, his has a very handmade quality. He has this overlay of gestures and then the objects that he applies to it. So he comments on the barrage of imagery from daily life. Someone like Oldenburg is using this soft material to, to render objects from daily life, like the soft pay telephone, which is oddly um, evocative of the body and, and is seen in relation in the exhibition to the Morris I just showed you. And then something like sailboat and freighter that have this very kind of crude quality made in, in canvas that were used in performance by Oldenburg. Someone like Siegel is engaging with Picasso. This work is um, actually based on a work in the Guggenheim's collection. And then here I'm showing you four. You'll see actually nine of these um, lithographs by, um, by Andy Warhol in the, in, in the installation. I thought it was very important to sh show the idea of the serial repetition. It's, it's gridded, if you will. Um, of ob images from daily life, and they're not just happy images. They're things like um, this electric chair from the Death and Disaster series. And so he talks about the ubiquitousness of the notion of death and, um, and how we kind of become numbed to it. So there's a bit of commentary as well as celebration of daily life. Um, this is an early work by Roy Lichtenstein, which is mimicking a sign going into a very famous grocery store in New York, Gristides. And then we have this amazing mural-sized um, painting from 68. And um, Lisa was mentioning that the Rosenquist Commission was based on his F-111 that dealt with the Vietnam War. This is a picture that is also connected to the Vietnam War. Um, the figures, you see their helmets and their faces. It's sort of the faceless figure of the soldier um, rendered in this bende dot technique, mimicking mass reproduction, but also uh, obviously painted by the artist, and the mural scale. Um, which, which is sort of evocative even of Soviet propaganda with this hammer and the hands. So um, this is one of our prized Lichtensteins. And actually, one of the, when I first went to graduate school, the first show I saw at the Guggenheim upon arrival was the Lichtenstein retrospective. So we have had a history of showing his work. We decided that um, just to give those chapters for the history of art because, um, and of course, what one of the things that happens with a collection shows you're obviously constrained by what you own and don't own. That's, that's one thing. And on the other, by the space that you're given in the exhibition 
and the story you want to tell. And so in dialogue with Amy and Tony, it was very clear to us that we wanted to focus on the United States in the 60s. Um, we could have shown Arte Povera from Europe, but that would have taken up a huge chunk of space, and we just felt like a lot of what we wanted to show in, in, in contemporary was really influenced by what we had already selected. And so going out of pop, you cross over a threshold into what we've called the legacy of pop. I'm actually going to start with Gilbert and George, because you can't miss it as you come through. Um, it's one of the biggest pictures, actually maybe the biggest picture in the show, and it's the only loan from our museum in Bilbao in Spain. And essentially what happens is a lot of artists going into the 80s and, and to, to today continue to mine and recombine some of the strategies and subject matter of pop. Gilbert and George are known for their early performances where they stood on the streets of London and sang as singing sculptures. And so... Um, they really are involved in a performative aspect, but they quickly moved into doing photographs and um, overlaying color, like these incredible lurid colors. And I said, it's one of the brightest and also the darkest sections of the whole exhibition. And so um, you see Gilbert and George here. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about how it was an element of self-portraiture, and I kept thinking about Andy Warhol's self-portraits, and I realized you know, when I looked at it that they're almost contemporaneous with this work. So, in fact... They're kind of almost walking in lockstep with later um, with Warhol at that moment. And the way Warhol, we have a green, green face self-portrait. It reminded me of these figures quite a bit. But here what you have is East End homosexual culture in London. Um, Gilbert and George are both artistic and life partners. And you have all these different men that make up um, their community. And also this kind of notion of masks and, and, and our notion of identity, what we show to the public face, what we hold back. Um, and we have one more work by Gilbert and George, which is you'll see it's hung at a particular level because I wanted the viewer to be at the level of Gilbert and George looking up at this young boy. Um, and it's very, very much, I, I kind of want to dub it, even though it's called Dream, Ah, Youth, you know, looking up at the young person striding forward with this spider-like um, figure behind him, this, this period of transformation that we all go through. Um, actually, I'll go to Kuhn's first. What, we do have two paintings by Jeff Kuhn's that were part of the Berlin Commission from the Easy Fun Ethereal series, and actually, um, I, I feel like every time I look at it that I'm never going to eat another bologna sandwich because it's just so so striking because it's a huge mural-sized painting, and you come right on it, so you'll see when you go in. But what, what Kuhn's did for this series is, um, well, first of all, Kuhn's emerged in the 1980s with um, working in a variety of materials that sometimes engage the legacy of minimalism by putting Hoover vacuum cleaners and lucite boxes on down to making um, a kind of stainless steel version of a blow-up bunny with a carrot. So he, he's, he's very much engaged with popular culture, and that's where he is in terms of the legacy of pop. But for these images, he took magazine advertisements, he com recombined them on the computer, and then he projected the image onto a canvas outlined it, and then his um, studio, which is really analogous to Andy Warhol's factory in certain ways, I think he had something, Lisa said he had 80 assistants at the time, and I know a couple of them, they, they painted these photorealistic paintings so that they really look like photos, but they're not, and both of them use kind of a combined imagery of food and sexuality, and they're very, um, they're, but they're also about the celebration of childhood, so it's kind of a whole big mix. And the last work in the section is by an artist, Paul McCarthy, known for his performance art, and McCarthy here is engaging with a very famous sculpture by Coons from the 80s called Michael Jackson and Bubbles, where Michael Jackson was made, his skin was made with white porcelain. He wore gold clothing. And so it was very much um, about this 80s period where he took his little chimpanzee bubbles everywhere. And he was, everybody was talking about how he kept getting whiter and whiter. Well, um, McCarthy is kind of dialoguing with both his forefather of Coons, and they're, they're kind of contemporaries, but in a way. Um, and, and celebrity culture and, and the tra a further transformation of Jackson in this period. I mean, this is a work from 2001. And um, I, our version is, there are different versions, and ours is in black. And I thought it was a very, very interesting. It's very much talking about um, his race on the one hand, and, and there's, um, I always, I kind of always feel strange are pointing this out, but it's very tar-like substance, although it's silicon. And... Um, it, it reminds me very much of the literature of the South and the United States about the Tar Baby, which is a very racist um, period in literature. But nonetheless, we're, there's a commentary on this and the kind of effacing of, of his identity. And at the same time, it's called Michael Jackson um, Fucked Up is the, is the subtitle. And certainly at this point, it's about his, his incredibly dark history with um, acu accusations of pedophilia. And now um, Bubbles actually really looks almost more like a child than a, than a monkey. 
The second of four sections is called The Natural World, and I said it's sort of slightly a fancy name for the contemporary landscape, but at the same time, it's, um, there's something quite unnatural about our natural world. As you cross over the threshold, you see this work. It's, it's um, a series of paintings on paper by Dave Muller, a young American artist. He's um, born in 1964. He's not quite the youngest artist. I think I'm going to be introducing the youngest artist in a minute. But nonetheless, um, Dave is known for being a DJ, and he t- treats his art like a DJ. He feels that the curator or the collector or himself, they can keep changing these panels, these different individual works, interchangeably. And so um, we bought a certain collection of panels that represent generic sky, but also um, a flag that was over a dealership in a car dealership in Los Angeles. The sky is actually supposed to be in Vancouver, so it's kind of bringing two different locations into one um, work. And at the same time, I chose here. Everyone said, "Well, how are you going to install it?" And I said, "Well." Dave came in and he installed it the way he wanted it as an ideal, and so I actually, since we're debuting it here, I went with what the artist wanted. But next time it could be different. Suling Wang is, um, we really wanted a painting in this section, and so we found Suling Wang's painting in our collection, and um, she is a Taiwanese artist based in London, and she has um, taken the scale and the gesture of abstract expressionism and fused it with elements of Asian landscape. When you get up close, you see these very small and beautiful moments um, in it. And then we set up a dialogue between this very um, romantic-looking minimalist landscape um, photograph by Elger Esser of a pier in um, Amsterdam, or in the Netherlands, sorry, with this painting by Nigel Cook, a British artist. And, and Nigel, we haven't shown Nigel Cook's painting, and it's something I've been really uh, kind of obsessing on since it came in. And you can't really see it in the slide, but it looks like you're looking at a Friedrich painting from the 19th century, but really when you get up close to it, you see that you're looking at a wasteland, that there's just kind of amazing decay, and, and nature is no, not at all pristine and spiritual. There are elements of graffiti that suggest this is a wall and not a landscape at all. So this and the Wang are about your expectations being upended when you get closer. And the last work in this section is by um, Alfred Eliasson, who I understand had an installation here that was quite different in style recently, his series of The Horizon, where he, it's hung at a level that doesn't allow you to use the horizon as your orientation point. It has this gridded serial repetition, but it's about kind of the artificial representation of nature, of kind of pushing it into the artist's um, format. Constructed Worlds is the first before last section. It has three galleries. Um, I'm going to skip to the first one I want to show you. Okay, great. So Rachel Whiteread is a British artist who has, as I understand it, not really been seen in Australia, so Amy and Tony felt very strongly about bringing her work. We had two pieces that were part of a Berlin commission, and what she tends to do is make casts of um, of architectural structures and objects of the negative space around it. And this is a staircase from her home um, in, in London. And so... It's on the one hand like minimalist sculpture. It has very basic forms. You feel your physical relationship to it. But on the other, it's kind of like a a snapshot of a place that has a very interesting history. Not only that it was a synagogue in another lifetime, but now that it has her personal history embedded within it as well. The other offshoot is the Matthew Barney, and Lisa alluded to that in her comments, um, showing you the installation from our retrospective of the Crewmaster um, film series. And essentially, Matthew designs it with the classic AstroTurf and all of the five films. And they were, shown, they were filmed out of sequence. Each one maps um, the, the process of sexual, de- in, in the abstract, the process of sexual differentiation, the early stages of, of development. And the whole thing has to do with transformation and endurance. And he develops a very specific visual language. And he doesn't really think of them as films, but more as sculpture. So as you enter into the world of Matthew Barney, you're, you're taken on a pretty wild journey. And, and really, many of them, they go from being kind of 40 minutes to, to two or three hours. So it's, it's definitely part of the work that you have to endure. These are some film stills from them. The first one um, has this blonde, um, this blonde woman that directs the whole thing. The second one, with, where it looks like a mugshot, is um, Matthew being in the character of Gary Gilmore, who is a serial killer. Um, the third one you see, which was the final film made, is when he comes to the Guggenheim and ascends the ramps one by one, because we have five, so he went through the five stages. The Order is what that part is called. Um, you have him in this kind of Celtic um, background here, where he has been, his signature Vaseline has gotten all over the figure. And finally, Ursula Andress in the culminating film, which takes place in the Budapest Opera House. The section also is based in photography, um, 
James K. Sabir makes tabletop models of sets and ph- photographs them. Um, this was a work very important to NGV because it had this kind of notion of asylum and a very minimal um, vocabulary. Is it prison? Is it, is it reflective? Same thing here. Truth and fiction is at the core of this, this section. Thomas DeMond's um, photograph called Archive, it's invoking again the grid, but what it is is a photograph of Lanny Riefenstahl, the uh, Nazi filmmaker's archive. Um, I mean, he builds a real life-size set, so it's not real, but at the same time, it makes us think about this kind of neutrality um, in relationship to such a troubled history. I'm not going to speak about Sarah, because she's going to talk to you in about five minutes at the most, because I'm going to wrap up soon. And um, this, um, Gregory Crutzen tends to set up kind of extremely large filmic sets to make works like this one. The Twilight series was almost contemporary. I think it was exactly contemporary with the movie American Beauty. And it has this incredible, like, dark side of American suburban life of the troubled um, family with a nude mother coming in from the garden for dinner. You probably saw on your way into the museum this work by Namjoon Pike. It, it can straddle constructed worlds and the natural world, in my opinion. Um, we wanted a really arresting work at the beginning of the show. It's not in this section, but it's conceptually part of it, which, which is a series of plants with television monitors playing a tape he made in the 70s. And so it's a great fusion of nature and culture. Um, and you know, Pike's goal at the time was to have be able to broadcast artist television, and um, it's still so current if you think about it in terms of the global connections made through the internet and internet art today. Final section, between public and private. We had a hard time coming up with the title of this one. We knew that there were certain works that we really wanted, and, um, and I struggled with it, but I think that what it does is it slightly rewinds the tape, and it takes you back to the 70s when feminism and um, coloni- post-colonial studies and, and queer theory were emerging. Notions of identity really took center stage. And um, that happened a lot of the times through performance. So the body becomes um, Im- implicated in it. And you'll walk, literally walk right into this um, almost me- medical-like examining table covered in a layer of iron oxide and um, I know that it's been printed with various numbers, but I think it is really approximately 7,000 animal and human teeth that were lovingly put out by our art handlers. My hat's off to them. Um, it's, it's a blend of human and animal teeth arranged according to like, t- like tooth. And Anne is, it's called Between Taxonomy and Communion, and Anne Hamilton is often interested in how we ca- use language to classify. And so on the one hand, there's a commonality that emerges from looking at like teeth, and then taxonomy tries to separate us. And so she's trying to bring and bridge that gap a bit. Um, What I love about it is when you just stand over it, it's almost like an abstract painting with a red background. And and I thought there was actually a painting that we kept looking at in the lounge we were using it by um, a a native of an indigenous artist here in Australia. And it looked very much like this. So I'm kind of doubly happy we have it here. Behind it are four videos by Anne where each monitors the level of your sense. So she's very much about pre-linguistic sensorial experience. Marina Abramovich is one of the most famous um, pioneers of, of performance art. She reenacted the, the, the performance you see up at the top, Lips of Thomas, where she takes a broken glass and bar- draws a star on her belly. Um, she reenacted that at, at the Guggenheim during my Russia show, and there's a little bit of unhappiness about that juxtaposition of icons and cutting of her stomach. But nonetheless, she, um, she really was someone who push the limits of using the body as a canvas of physical endurance and also allowing the, the, the viewer to become involved in the second image you see. She allowed viewers to take pens, knives, gun, whatever, and do what they wanted to her and, and until it got too, uh, too risky. So she's, she pushes the limits all the way. And you see um, one work by her in video where she's actually meticulously cleaning a skeleton. And it's called, as you see, Cleaning the Mirror. And, and, and very much about the idea of the skeleton being the mirror of us. And, um, and it's really very powerful in relationship to that table of teeth. Because we really are, I mean, this room is about our mortality and about who we are and where we're going. This work doesn't read at all in slide, but um, Adriana Varjao is a young Brazilian artist. And, and this work is something that we see as looping us back to Fontana with the slashes in the canvas. Only here, the kind of, instead of space beyond, the gut's under, gut underbelly is, is literally, you'll see it, it looks like viscera. Um, the canvas is bursting with it, but the canvas grid is actually a, an imitation of bathroom tile. Sometimes she imitates Portuguese tile, um, hand-painted, because she's often talking about the deep wounds of Brazilians, Brazil's um, colonial history. Cindy Sherman was a great pioneer of photography in the 80s and continues to be very important, and we chose this work, um, which is... We actually didn't get in on the market on Cindy Sherman early, so we don't have a lot of work. So when um, NGV was very interested in including her, we were sort of 
struggling as to what we'd put in, but this is a piece that's a shot of um, set up with prosthetics of a, of a, of a kind of um, crime scene, and you see the teeth in it. And then she has, often she's the model in her own work, so you see her in her androgynous guise, which was a lead-in to our section on Robert Maplethorpe, series of self-portraits ranging from this androgynous representation to a very late work right before he died from AIDS, where he's almost down to a skeleton hovering in the darkness with a skeleton cane that links you back to the Marina Abramovich piece. And then a few other works. We tried to look at Mablethorpe not in the context of controversy, but in the context of classical photography. Um, his engagement, as you saw with that show, Mablethorpe Mannerism with Sculpture. Two final works, and then I'm wrapping up. This is Maurizio Catalan. You have to go around a corner to capture him, but he is, um, as you see in the installation shop from New York, this piece is usually shown in a very empty space. Um, Maurizio is, has been very, um, he's very much conceptual in his approach, and here he's literally hanging on a modernist um, coat hanger or coat rack designed by Marcel Breuer, and um, wearing the, he's cloaked in the felt suit of the great German conceptual artist Joseph Beuys. So he's very much put himself in the context of art history and he's sort of um, sheepishly acting like he doesn't have any ideas but really in fact this thing is quite arresting and um, and we also liked putting it at the end because it kind of turns you back in time to the Giacometti hanging from the um, cage at the beginning. The final work in the exhibition is by Felix Gonzalez Torres. He was Cuban born a naturalized American and is presently representing posthumously the United States at the Venice Biennale. Our chief curator of the museum in New York, Nancy Spector, curated that presentation. And this work is in Venice right now, just as it's the same moment it's in, in, in Melbourne. Um, Lisa mentioned the challenge of candy. The candy company did just go out of business, and thanks to Amy's quick work, we got it. But, um, but basically, it was made during the first Gulf War. There are candies that look like bullets or missiles. And... Um, he really was, it's called public opinion, and he wanted us to think about not just blindly having an opinion, not like actually having an opinion about the conflict, and we felt it was a really timely piece to bring out at this moment, considering the state of the world, and what Felix did is he used the forms of minimalism, but then he used something like candy as a material, and he invites you to take one, so that you're engaged with the work, he shares his generosity, and you take this piece out into the world and spread it, and maybe you think about it. Um, so the whole exhibition is about this transformation from just a classic painting on the wall to something you can take with you into the world. So I, am, I know I've gone a bit over, and I'm dying to hear what Sarah Ann Johnson has to say. So I am going to thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs>